President Biden delivered his second State of the Union address, and he covered a lot of ground. You know, we're often told that Democrats and Republicans can't work together. But over the past two years, we've proved the cynics and naysayers wrong. Topics included the economy, American resilience, and unity. But for all the talk of bipartisanship, Republicans made their feelings known loudly. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. The State of the Union address is usually the largest television audience for a president. Last year, 38 million people tuned in. Today, we hear from our panel and from you about what stood out from the address. Then later on, we speak to a panel of speechwriters for a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into putting together speeches like the State of the Union. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now is April Ryan. She's the White House correspondent at The Grio and a political analyst at CNN. April, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Ron Elving. He's the senior political editor and correspondent at NPR. Ron, welcome back. Good to be with you, Jen. So, April, as I said, this is President Biden's second State of the Union speech. He spoke for a little over 70 minutes. How do you think this address differed from that first address? Um, the, the mood, uh, the, the ideology of the opposing party, the heckling. Um, you know, I was one of the uh, anchors, influencers, media influencers that met with the president hours before. And, you know, I can't speak to what we talked about, but he was in an upbeat mood and it carried into uh, the speech, even with the heckling. It didn't seem to bother him. He gave uh, the Republicans the what for. He even did a gotcha. But um, how did it play out? Really? Um, I just think that the White House is looking for the nation to be more optimistic from that speech. And time will tell. We will watch and see what the polls have to say. But they think it went well. But let's see what the people have to say about it. Well, as we said, there was a lot of hooting and hollering from Republicans in the House chamber. And one moment happened when President Biden mentioned that the U.S. would have to depend on oil for the next decade. We're still going to need oil and gas for a while. But guess what? No, we do. But there's so much more to do. we got to finish the job. We pay for these investments for our future by finally making the wealthiest and biggest corporations begin to pay their fair share. Just begin. Now, Ron, it was expected that Biden would come into this speech with a message of bipartisanship. But with the rowdiness in the chamber, do you think that bipartisan sentiment made its way through? It did from the standpoint of Joe Biden and his supporters. He stuck to that theme, at least in the first part of the speech. And when he started to stick it to the Republicans, that's when the booing and the more serious heckling began. But the initial tone of the speech, as is almost always true in the State of the Union, is gracious and courteous and congratulating Kevin McCarthy on becoming Speaker and congratulating the Republicans even on becoming the majority party. Now, of course, no one takes that as terribly sincere, but it's all part of the usual congressional courtesy. And he did respect that in the early part of the speech. It was when he turned to differing with the Republicans with respect to Social Security and Medicare in particular that the 
confrontation of the evening began. And I think all of that was quite intentional as well. The White House wanted the drama. They wanted the high contrast. They wanted to goad the Republicans into some of that bad behavior. And it certainly worked. Well, explain that a little bit more. Why would they want to goad Republicans into that behavior? They've been watching the cadre of hardcore Republicans within the House majority who seem to be in control. Now, they may not be anywhere near a majority of the House Republicans, but they did have the critical votes that made Kevin McCarthy speaker in the end because McCarthy had to get all the Republican votes or virtually all the Republican votes to be speaker. So because 20, roughly, were holding their votes back, waiting for various and sundry promises, they asserted a kind of practical control over the McCarthy speakership. And they have made it very clear that even though he asked them to behave and to uh, be courteous in the State of the Union last night, to to be respectful of the presidency, if not of Joe Biden. Uh, They simply refused. And they came loaded for bear and they were ready to boo and shout liar. And they did so. Well, even with the heckling, as you said, April Biden was was pretty lively and interactive with the crowd through his speech. He even made a few jokes. A new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy shushed members of his caucus a few times throughout the speech. Here's what McCarthy told reporters before the address. We, we have a code of ethics of how we should portray ourselves, but also do our jobs. And that's exactly what we'll do. But we're not going to be childish games tearing up a speech. He's referring to former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tearing up a copy of former President Trump's speech in 2020. But April heckling during big presidential speeches is a fairly new practice. Uh, In 2009, a Republican representative yelled liar during then-President Obama's speech to a joint session of Congress, later apologized. But is this – what does this say about the state of Congress right now, and is this the new normal? It just may be the new normal, unfortunately. Throughout the speech, I heard Marjorie Taylor Greene. I heard her voice. I couldn't always hear what she said. But in in uh, McCarthy, um, Kevin McCarthy really tried to to keep the peace and keep you know just be respectful. But you have those who are in the House, uh, particularly the House, who are just he can't control them. They were some of the ones who were heckling who didn't even want him as speaker. So voted against him for as many times as he told them to hush um, or even more. Um, So I think what we're seeing is what's playing out, the ideology, the shift in the Republican Party, the shift in politics in Washington, the shift that has taken hold. Um, And what it is, I mean, it's one thing when people sit down. That was was the, that was the, calm and and uh, it was a calm disdain. That was the politically correct disdain, if you will, in the past. And, and you're now, talking about these moments where the president will say yeah. something, his party stands up, applauds, the other party yeah. remains seated. Yes. And I saw that clearly in some moments. But then I also saw some moments where everyone stood. But now the heckling, um, it's not theater. This is politics. It's personal for people. But unfortunately, people are entertained by that. Look at the Look at, um, you know, the ratings that Donald Trump did when he was irreverent and that irreverence has us talking this morning. And so um, I, I hope it there is decorum because these are sacred political spaces and people listen to hear what's happening to them personally or what impacts them or what inf- affects them. Um, I hope the decorum comes back, but it looks like it may be here for a while. Well, Ron, that makes me wonder how much 
of the State of the Union is really an address on the State of the Union anymore. It is an address on the State of the Union in the sense that it tells us a little bit about the health of our democracy, a little bit about the state of our feelings one state to another. I mean, the State of the Union idea, that that, that name for the speech really only came into popular use in the 1930s and then became the standard name for the speech uh, in the 1940s when it was first on television with Harry Truman. Uh, Back in the 1800s, it, it was just called the annual message and uh, the president's message and things like that. Uh, The State of the Union idea, I think, implies a certain degree of hangover, really, from the Civil War and from the periods of our history when we were not a United States of America, when we were very much uh, regionally divided. And some of that is coming back in our politics. And I think that now, talking about the State of the Union, really begs the question, uh, do we want to be a 50-state union? Do we feel compatible enough with our fellow citizens? I'm not saying that it divides on regional lines, certainly not in any neat fashion. But there are parts of the country, sometimes geographical, sometimes whole state units, and other times, let us say, divisions within the demography of the country that do not feel that same sense of, well, let us call it community feeling on a national basis. We got this call from Mark in Ohio about his thoughts on the State of the Union address. Well, I was thinking a lot about the heckling and the misbehavior. And someone a lot cleverer than me observed that Donald Trump gave Americans something no other politician did, permission to be our worst selves, to act out. Uh, Being a jerk is almost a patriotic act. So he gave the permission slip to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and the people who were acting out. My question is, um, he's gone. Is there any way to take this permission back, to Hmm. say, no, it's not okay to behave like that. Mark, thanks for that call. April, your thoughts? I mean, there is a Speaker of the House who can censure members. We we, we had a censure when President Obama was called a liar during his State of the Union address. Is that on the table? No, it's not on the table, Uh, especially when this irreverence, this pushback against the standards and the norms and what used to be is in play, um, especially after you have some Republicans who don't want to acknowledge what happened actually on January 6th. Um, you know, the censure, or not the censure, but the punishment that the Republicans are looking for is against Joe Biden, not necessarily against their own right now. So um, I, it's, it's a different day. Let's move on now to the economy. Now, the economy has been top of mind for many these last few years, and it was definitely a big part of Biden's address. How did he try to ease concerns about the economy? Ron, I'll turn to you. In terms of the direction of the economy. So he talked about how jobs are being created, and there are very impressive numbers for job creation over the last two years. Of course, that's compared to a very low base because of COVID. And also that inflation, while still high, and he called it high and unacceptable, still it's coming down. It's down over the last six months and perhaps approaching a level where the Federal Reserve could back off a bit on uh, its policy of raising interest rates and to some degree strangling the economy for for credit. 
Uh, that has people expecting a recession, but the recession hasn't hit yet. And so Biden could point to a lot of numbers that said that things are getting better. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't feel the pain. And it doesn't mean that people don't still feel that prices are too high for food and for gasoline and for everything else that they have to buy every day. But at least he could point to something ameliorative, something that said, look, hang in there. We're working on it. We had this problem with the pandemic. We had a lot of other problems that came out of the pandemic. It's getting better. We're aware of your problems. And he also focused in on some very small things that possibly could be corrected, things that might almost seem petty in a, in, a, in a national speech, in a presidential speech, things like, oh, the added fees they call resort fees at hotels and, and, and things like what they charge you when you change your telephone carrier or your, your, your cable carrier. Uh, people are annoyed by those things, and they, I think, respond to hearing Joe Biden talk about them. Yeah. I'm curious to hear from you as well, April. What were your big takeaways uh, from the president's address, specifically as it refers to the economy? Yeah. The junk fees. um, I want to go back to that, the junk fees. It's so interesting because the average person uh, really is impacted by those. The average person who is working hard, maybe underemployed, trying to make ends meet with a family. Uh, the late charges, what did he say, from $30 to $8, that impacts uh, someone who's struggling economically. Um, when you talk about overdrafts, the president talked about um, overdrafts at one point uh, throughout um, this State of the Union moment session, not just last night, but that um, he was saying, you know, if uh overdraft fees go up to $50, that hurts a family uh, of four that makes $140,000. So he's really trying to get in the minutia to really make people understand that, look, I'm here for you. I'm working. He's trying to impress upon them. Look, I'm creating jobs, staved off recession, et cetera. We got to get this debt ceiling, but I'm here for you. That's what last night was. But also when you talk about what else, uh, what else uh, struck me, um, policing. Mm-hmm. Uh, police reform. And Kevin McCarthy did not clap on that. But when the president did say, you know, we support our police, he did. But the issue of police reform is very elusive right now uh, to those who want it. And the president really spoke last night more so to white people, uh, everyone else but black people. He talked about the talk. He said, have you, you know, I have never had to have that talk with Bo or Hunter. Actually, we have that clip of the speech. Let's let's go to the president talking about the talk. Most of us in here have never had to have the talk, the talk that brown and black parents have had to have with their children. Bo, Hunter, Ashley, my children, I never had to have the talk with them. I never had to tell them if a police officer pulls you over, turn your interior lights on right away. Don't reach for your license. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Imagine having to worry like that every single time your kid got in a car. It's worth noting that Tyree Nichols' parents were in the House chamber during the speech. And, of course, Nichols died after a brutal beating by five police officers in January. April, it was interesting to me, though, what the president said about police reform and what he what he didn't say. There was no mention of the, the removal of qualified immunity. There was a lot of focus on improving mental health resources for officers. What made it into the speech and what got left out? Well, you have to remember um, the numbers of officers, uh, numbers of people going into the police department are dwindling. 
anything this president says, you want to make sure that you support you also make sure people uh, understand where you're coming from, but you don't want to say something that could harm the police force in any kind of way, too. But you also it's, it's a delicate balance between rights and accountability. He talked about, um, you know, support for them in the midst of all this. Um, you're right. He didn't talk about body cameras. He didn't talk about uh, qualified immunity. There's also another piece that attorney Ben Crump uh, who was in the well of the house last night said um, duty to intervene since the Tyree Nichols uh, 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 death. They're trying to put that in the George Floyd justice and policing act as well. Duty to intervene since the Tyree Nichols death, but it wasn't Tyree Nichols family also wasn't the only family there. You had the family, uh, the father of Mike Brown was there. You had uh, a relative, I think the brother of Walter Scott, who was killed in North Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Um, you've had, it, there were a number of people who were siblings or parents of those uh, highly publicized uh, police-involved uh, deaths to include um, what is Tamir Rice. His parent was there as well. Um, the young boy who was killed in Cleveland, he looked like he had, you know, a, a person called in the park said that this child had a gun and it was a toy and he was killed. So there are a lot of aspects of this, the minutia, the president really did, didn't dig into. Um, he knew he had a limited amount of time, but he wanted to put the passion in it. And that was one of the last components of his speech, really, because the way we understand it in our reporting at the GRIO, that the Congressional Black Caucus met with him that Thursday. And that was the only ask that they had. Please talk about policing, um, police reform. And in this moment, currently, uh, Senator Cory Booker and Senator Tim Scott are working on trying to come to some kind of terms on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We got this message from Bill in Tampa, Florida. If you add up all of the mandated social programs we have, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and the list goes on, plus servicing the debt, it is now more than every single dime the company, the country takes in on taxes, which means to turn the lights on in the White House, they now have to borrow money. Bill, thanks for that call. And here's this message from Mike in Michigan, who liked Biden's comment on Social Security. I like the way he called out the Republicans on the Social Security and Medicare cuts. I read about them in the New York Times and Washington Post uh, before the speech. And I like his feistiness. He kind of reminded me when he met Putin for the first time and looked at him and said, Sir, you have no soul. It's just a certain feisty that you wouldn't expect in Biden, but there it is. He, you know, he brings it out when he needs it. Thanks for that call, Mike. Let's go to that moment from the night, and it was a back and forth over Medicare and Social Security. Biden mentioned that some Republicans wanted to cut funding to the programs, and that sent the GOP into an uproar. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. the proposal. So, Ron, first, I mean, how much are social safety net programs costing the country at this point? 
They're enormously expensive, but they're also enormously popular. And, of course, the majority of Republicans don't want to cut back on Social Security or Medicare, perhaps trimming the benefits in the sense of making people work longer before they qualify, say, until they're 68 or 70 years old instead of some of the earlier ages at which people can qualify now. And those kinds of, uh, if you want to call them trims, are likely to happen in the long run. But what has also been proposed, and here we're talking specifically about the leader of the Senate's campaign committee last fall, that's Rick Scott from Florida, that particular senator who was chairman of their campaign committee and ran for leader of the party said we should sunset Social Security and Medicare and all other federal programs automatically after five years and make Congress pass them again and put them into the normal budget meat grinder with everything else. Uh, That is probably the proposal that Joe Biden was talking about, and it has been endorsed by some of the Republicans in the House. And while it may only be a minority, it is a sort of leading idea for dealing with the federal deficit. Notice that the very beginning of Joe Biden's reference to Social Security was to say, instead of asking the wealthy to pay their fair share— In other words, there is another approach to restoring solvency in the long run to Social Security and Medicare, to putting them on a long-term basis, and that would be simply to raise the income limits on which they're charged. Right now, people stop paying Social Security taxes after 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 they have passed a certain point of income. So there is a limit on how much they can eventually get. There's a limit on how much they can eventually, they can eventually pay in. Uh, that particular limitation has as much to do with why Social Security is in the long term a huge drain on the federal budget. Let's go to this message from Doug in Orlando, Florida. Doug had some thoughts about Senator Scott's position on Medicaid and Medicare. The president was not going to use his name. He was too polite to use the man's name, but we all know what he said, and it's worse than just Social Security. If you think about sunsetting every federal law, that means things like the EPA, uh, that means uh, civil rights legislation. This is a backdoor way to try to dismantle all the progress that was made in the 20th century uh, to uh, having a, a decent country and put us back into the 19th century Gilded Age, and we, we don't need that. And these Republicans, uh, if they could have their dream and their wish, that would be it. Doug, thanks for your thoughts. April, I mean, what's your take on on what Doug just said there? You know, um, I heard something this week that was so poignant from someone, um, one of the principals at the White House. There is a shift every two to five generations. And, you know, when these uh, programs were put in place, they were to be an assurance of security. And now it's up. These are up for question. And, you know, it's just we're in we're within that that shift. And I think about, you know, the conversation that was had during the same conversation that was had during the George W. Bush years. You know, what do we do with Social Security? There was a law during the Democratic um, presidential occupancy of the White House. I mean, they were more so not talking about privatizing, but trying to shore it up. And every time we go to this moment in the last 20 years or so, there seems to be an effort to dismantle. It's too costly. Let's figure out something else. And it goes back to what was said at the White House from that principle, that there is this generational shift every two to five generations. And this is that moment. Social Security, I mean, as we're going through these debates, the question is, will it be sure in the future. I mean, right now, 
the, the people who are moving into the age of retirement or to get their social security checks, what have you, um, it's there for them. But the question is, what's going to happen to my 20 year old when she grows up? You know, right now, we just don't know. But in this moment, uh, we know in this moment, these next two years, it should stay. I mean, the debate's going to continue, but will it move to another place where the assurance is not so sure? Well, Biden's exchange with Republicans over Medicare and Social Security ended with this. So, folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We got unanimity. Social Security and Medicare are a lifeline for millions of seniors. Americans have to pay into them from the very first paycheck they started. So tonight, let's all agree, and we apparently are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Those benefits belong to the American people. They earned it. And if anyone tries to cut Social Security, which apparently no one's going to do, and if anyone tries to cut Medicare, I'll stop them. I'll veto it. Ron, what did you make of this moment? Absolutely fabulous moment in the history of speech writing for State of the Union addresses. Whether you give the credit to the speech writers or you give the credit to Joe Biden for how he handled it, he absolutely snookered the angry Republican minority into standing up and applauding. And while he had them standing up for seniors, stand up for seniors, he said, and while they were all doing it, he got them to agree, essentially, to what he was saying they were applauding for. Well, of course, they weren't all applauding for anything he chooses to do on Social Security and Medicare. There's a real variety of views on it, and there are many people opposed to those programs going on as they are. But they were all standing up and applauding and whistling and cheering and not really probably listening very carefully anymore. And so by the time it was done, he had gone through all those other statements about how everyone seems to be on board, reassuring the American people, and boy— it's just, it's egg on the face if you try to turn around the next day and say, oh, no, the, I, w- I wasn't applauding that. So, it, it, it look, all of this is, in some degree, it, it's, it's for show. If, to some degree, it's just theatrics. But it has a meaning. It has ultimately a message to those who were watching and those who hear about it. And far more people will hear about it than watched it. And they'll see the clips. And the clips make it look like Joe Biden won. We're discussing President Biden's second State of the Union address, and we'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back into the conversation with this message from Paula in Detroit. Here's what she thought of the speech. I think that State of the Union address was one of the most upbeat and most informative speeches that I have heard in decades I think the 90% positive energy that was in that room was palpable, and the embarrassing juvenile non-professional heckling by the Republicans was totally uh, predictable, and I'm hoping the media doesn't spend too much of our time focusing on that because 90% of it was very positive. I also think that Biden's sportsmanship-like 
sparring was refreshingly um, um, just just absolutely what's needed. I also think that his the way he took them on, the way he presented himself and the issues defies ageist naysayers. Um, he hit the nail on the head about the economy, about Social Security, Medicare, police reform. Who else have taken on and talked about the talk? Okay, the talk that many of us have to give our kids. And, you know, but that was raised there. And um, um, also the issues about our, our resurgence in terms of our leadership um, internationally. Um, this, this, it was one of the best presentations. I think Ron Elvin said it was fabulous. That is the word for it. Thanks for that call, Paula. And here's the call we got from Grace in Boca Raton in Florida. Here's what she had to say. Well, it was highly effective, as your guest has made the case. But it was more than effective. It proved that President Biden can handle it. And that's what we need. It proved that President Biden spent 36 years in the Senate and eight years as vice president. And doing that, he knows what he needs as president. And that's the kind of person we have to get. Not a newcomer, not somebody shiny and bright, but really somebody who knows what kind of staff they need. Wherever you've worked, wherever I've worked, it isn't the man at the desk, the resolute desk, or any other desk. It's his staff. And that staff has to know what staff they need. And that staff has to know what staff they need. And we fortunately, right now, have a highly effective administration, which is what everyone wants, whether it's Republican or Democrat. They want President Biden to not run a second time because there are a lot of individuals who would love to have that staffing, that administration. Thanks for that call, Grace. We also heard from Stephanie who says, I don't think prices are too high, but rather that wages are too low. President Biden did talk about the middle class during his speech. Let's listen. I ran for president to fundamentally change things, to make sure our economy works for everyone so we can all feel that pride in what we do. To build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. Because when the middle class does well, the poor have a ladder up and the wealthy still do very well. We all do well. Ron, what were your takeaways from what the president had to say about the middle class? He talked quite a bit about people who would fall into that general category. Working families is a, a phrase that politicians have adopted in recent years in, in place of calling people middle class. It's, it's, if you will, the holy grail of our politics is to get the votes of working families. Whichever way people feel the politics of the country are running that affect their ability to make ends meet, to not only put food on the table, but to do all the other things that American families have become accustomed to doing. Have a vacation, send kids to college if they want to go, have a few chances to do things that maybe they didn't get to do when they were kids. That is, if you will, the reality of the American dream in our time. And it is extremely difficult, whether it is either because wages are limited or wages are lost, or whether it's because prices are rising, which All of those circumstances beset working families. So both parties are making every effort they can to speak that language, to speak to those people, and to try to address their needs. Let's go to this message from Ralph in Florida. Ralph wanted to talk about the taxes needed for federal programs. Unfortunately, it's an ongoing issue with the mainstream economists 
and the politicians they reflect, uh, getting people to think about uh, taxes and funding of the federal government in terms of uh, household and private business economics and what they have to do. And that's totally misleading because the federal government is the supplier of our currency and everybody else is the user. And that means the monetary aspects of it are comp- uh, uh, just the opposite of, of uh, and people, uh, you know, basically then grossly misled to think of it in terms, you know, of their own household, their own private business. And that's not the way it works monetarily today. Um, and uh, the real issue is inflation. And the real issue is uh, inflation is caused by, uh, you know, supply side, you know, resource issues. And uh, that's where the real you know, whether or not we can afford it uh, falls. You know, it's not the dollars which basically get generated by the government as needed uh, to pay for programs. It's whether or not the real resources are there. Ralph, thanks for that call. I want to bring our panelists back in here. Um, Ron, I'd love to hear your response to that. I know you're not an economist, but go ahead. There has been over the years a, a kind of given language, a rhetoric that's been used to say that government should run itself more like a business. I think the caller has identified the basic problem with that kind of rhetoric, which is that the government is not a business. It's a government, and it has different purposes from a private business. And while it should have the responsibility of being fiscally responsible and certainly don't want to imply that the federal government should pay no attention whatsoever to budget deficits, but it has a different set of responsibilities and our federal government has operated on debt since its very beginning. Since its very beginning, Alexander Hamilton proposed that the federal government, the 13 colonies, consolidate their debt. And that has been, in a sense, one of the defining elements of what makes us a federal government ever since. So the caller's on to something. The caller is talking about the difference between running a private business or running your own family and the government. Hmm. Let's go back to our messages. We have Rob in Ohio. Here's his thoughts on the direction the country's moving in. Hi. Um, I actually have a, a more hopeful outlook. I think that uh, overall the country, as much as people like to push the culture war ideas, is a fairly liberal place in terms of just personal freedoms. Now, not necessarily in the political sense, but more just in the civil sense. And I think that's really one thing that uh, the Republicans um, and the conservative party in general kind of gets wrong about America. If you're going to be liberal, that just means that you're free to be conservative or liberal. And what they're trying to push is the idea that Americans can only live in the specific way that they think they should live. And it's not very, you know, pro-freedom or pro-democracy to treat your citizens as though they aren't free citizens like that. Thanks for that call, Rob. Well, that takes us to the GOP rebuttal, again, given by Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Let's listen. Most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace. But we are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. Every day we are told we must partake in their rituals, salute their flags, and worship their false idols. All while big government colludes with big tech to strip away the most American thing there is. Your freedom of speech. That's not normal. It's crazy. And it's wrong. 
So, April, that's the GOP rebuttal, but we heard from Rob just a moment ago who thinks the country is moving in a direction where there's more freedom to be liberal or conservative. What did you take away from the way Sanders framed where the country's headed? Uh, um, so let me say this. I, it was painful for me to, to watch and hear as a Black person and uh, just being a person, but as a journalist, I listened intently. And I listened to others. I heard... Van Jones say that he knows that she's a nice person, but that was a mean speech. I listened to the words that she said as the new governor of Arkansas. She talked about wokeness. She talked about how she uh, she didn't like wokeness, and she made an indirect reference to Patanji Brown Jackson. She talked about freedom, but also talked about the bans that she put in place when she first became governor a ban on uh, the word Latinx and also on CRT, which is not even being taught in Arkansas. It was a speech that was really mirroring what Donald Trump uh, spoke of, who he was in the White House. Um, In Harkinbeck, I saw her, heard her, but I also heard the man that she was once the press secretary for. And she called Joe Biden a liar. Um, And, you know, she was called herself a liar in that podium. It was a very contradictory speech. So when you look at the the stark difference between the State of the Union address and the GOP rebuttal, and again, this is something that happens with every State of the Union. The other party, of course, gives their rebuttal. But is there... Is there something different this year? In the same way as you said, the State of the Union felt a little different. Did you feel something different in the rebuttal as well? Yeah. Um, last year, the well, actually, yeah, last year, or what, I forgot what year it was, the Tim Scott gave the rebuttal, um, Senator Tim Scott. And that was when, you know, we were in the, the infancy of really uh, re-entering again into police reform negotiations. And Tim Scott said something to the effect. He said, there's, you know, there's not, I'm paraphrasing, there's not racism in America as he was going into uh, the discussions. That was the one of the most striking phrases of that moment. We remember, but then to go into this, this is such a drastic turn from even that. Um, this was steeped in hate. It was steeped in us versus them. It was not calling for unity. It was a call to the base of Donald Trump. And that's what it was. I want to quickly mention something that the president didn't spend much time on, two major topics, in fact, climate change and abortion. Ron, what do you make of that decision? Those questions are always uh, hard to deal with the day after the speech. Why didn't he talk more about this? Why didn't he talk more about that? It does seem surprising he would not have spoken more of his – given more of his speech to the question of abortion because while he did mention it and got a big cheer on the Democratic side for mentioning the Dobbs decision, uh, he was clearly not there to take on the Supreme Court. They were sitting in front of him. He had several opportunities to do so and had chosen not to as Obama did choose to take them on at least once during his presidency. Biden made the other decision. He probably didn't want to talk about an abortion anymore because right at the moment, uh, that is an issue that I think is working for the Democrats. It certainly worked for them in the November midterm elections, bringing out a lot of voters, primarily women, who felt that the Dobbs decision that overthrew the Roe versus Wade decision 
was an impingement on their personal freedoms and on their rights as citizens. And that is something that is already working for the Democrats. He might not have felt as though he needed to hit it any harder than he did just to get the one cheer. On climate change, perhaps we got mostly his view on climate change with his sort of concession to say, we're going to need fossil fuels for a while longer. Uh, That carries with it a message that there's going to be a time limit on the reliance on fossil fuels and that we are going to continue and, as Biden said many times last night, finish the job, make the transition to being a fossil-free fuel, a fossil fuel-free economy within perhaps the lifetime of many of the people in that room. Biden has plenty of ambitious plans laid out in this speech, but Republicans have control of the House. April, in this divided Congress, which parts of his address or of his agenda are most likely to get through? I, you know, I, I, I'm going to tell you this. I'm just going to have a wait and see approach because with the House being very strong in its discontent with Biden and their efforts to begin investigations, et cetera, on him, his son and anything else, I really wonder. Um, and, you know, the White House doesn't want to claim lame duck. I don't even think it's lame duck. I'm, I'm thinking it's just not, I can't do anything because they are so intent against me. I, I really don't know where there's going to be agreement because they're so fierce against him. And you still have the former president looming who got really upset over the agreement on, um, you know, economic issues recently. But and now we have a debt ceiling. Uh, with a deadline of June 1. And that's a real piece right there that, that will signify if there is a moment of unity, if there is a moment uh, to stand together for the nation. That's April Ryan. She's White House correspondent at The Grio and a political analyst at CNN. Also with us, Ron Elving. He's the senior political editor and correspondent at NPR. Ron, April, great to have you with us. And thanks for all of your calls and comments today as well. Coming up, we take a closer look at presidential speeches. What does it take to write a great political speech? And what's it like to work closely with the head of state to craft the State of the Union address? Our panel of guests answers those questions and more for this edition of our Ask A series. This time, we ask a political speechwriter. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, and for this episode, we're taking a closer look at speeches with an even closer look at presidential speeches. For much of the past century, American presidents have turned to speechwriters to help them pen their most remarkable addresses, and those have changed a lot over the years. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. A man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. My duty tonight is to report on the state of the union, not the state of our government, but of our American community. In the battle between democracy and autocracies, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. Nowadays, most politicians have a speechwriter or a team of them to help write everything from press briefings to major speeches. What does it take to write a great political speech? And what's it like to work closely with the head of state to craft the State of the Union address? 
We continue our Ask a Series with Ask a Political Speechwriter. We bring a panel of guests working the same job to tell us about their lives and answer all your questions. Joining us from WAMU in Washington is Jeff Nussbaum. He's a former special assistant and senior speechwriter for President Joe Biden. Also with us, Sarah De Perry. She's a former special assistant and senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. And June Shi. June is a former senior speechwriter for Hillary Clinton and former special assistant and speechwriter for President Bill Clinton. Thanks to you all for joining us. Let's get into it. Uh, Jeff, last night, President Biden delivered the State of the Union address to Congress. It was broadcast to millions of Americans who watch from their home. It's an opportunity for a president to lay out their accomplishments and agenda for the country. How do presidential speechwriters prepare for such a major speech? Well, it's it's um, thanks for the question. It's a different beast than most speeches speechwriters are involved in. And it's in part, it's because it is such a massive process that's that's almost like a whole of government approach, um, you know, starting in November, different cabinet agencies, different departments within the White House will provide lists of recommendations, things that they've done, things that the president could do, things that he could do via executive action. So this this State of the Union process is more a process of trying to get 10 pounds of ideas into a one-pound bag and throughout it all trying to be very clear about what is the agenda, what are the accomplishments, what is the agenda going forward. So the challenge for speechwriters is, is in that case, to try to make sure there are some coherent themes and through lines and emotional moments so that it doesn't devolve into a list. Well, that, that makes me wonder, June, to what extent is the, the writing of the speech just as important as its delivery if you're trying to hit those emotional moments? Well, I think, yeah, you've got this like dry list of policies and, and things that you want to convey to the American people and sell to the American people or it's very important and that are meeting their needs. So you need to find a way to write about it economically and, you know, because you're trying, as Jeff said, trying to fit a 10-pound items into a one-pound bag. So it's like finding the right words and boiling down a 50, you know, 500-word policy into 10, 15 words. And so each word matters and it, it weighs. Um, and I can't, like, I'm an ancient, I'm a dinosaur, but we're going back to, like, 1998. And, you know, Clinton was under attack for, I think, Social Security. And we're trying to figure out a way to, like, um, sort of cabin the opposition and um, and we came up with four words, save Social Security first. You know, that sort of just said, okay, Social Security is off the table. So so it's kind of finding those clever ways or simple ways to, mm-hmm. to convey a message. Sarah, I'm curious, as you're working closely with the president, you, you write the speech, but how many revisions are there before you, you think you got it right, or at least you hope you got it as close to right as it can possibly be? Yeah, I mean, speech writing is... 25% writing and 75% editing, especially, as Jeff said, in a speech that's mostly a process where many, many people have their sort of hands into in the speech. And, you know, the speechwriter's job is to kind of protect the president's voice, protect the president's overarching message, um, and make sure that there is a story that, especially in the State of the Union, a story that you're trying to tell about the America that, you know, you are trying to create and that you are trying to build toward. And so a speechwriter has to kind of defend, you know, what they believe the president's interests are. That's kind of our job. And so, yes, there are a lot of people involved and there will be a lot of revisions. But the reason you have a speechwriter is to sort of have them use their judgment to 
uh, make sure that they're maintaining the integrity of what the president's overarching message is. But absolutely, I mean, the sausage making can be really, really intense. Um, you know, you, you'll have, especially in the final days after months of working on the speech, you'll have people coming from all corners, you know, policy folks, cabinet secretaries coming at the the main speechwriter on the, on the, who's got the lead pen saying, can you get my idea in? You know, my uh, former boss, Cody Keenan, tells a story about how somebody staked him out in the bathroom, you know, <laughs> trying to get his, get their policy into the speech at the final hour. So it's very much a process of revision, um, but ultimately it's the speechwriter's job to kind of push back as much as they can and help keep the president on message. And 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 by the way, when you ultimately send that last draft, like you'll look at how you've titled it and it'll be like V18. And you'll be like, oh my God, did we really go through 18, 18 versions of this? Yeah. Right, right. Well, something you just said really stood out to me, Sarah Dan, that was protecting the president's Voice, And I'd love to briefly hear from each of you how you learn to write in a president's voice. What are the things that help you identify? This sounds like something they would say, but this, uh, I don't think that's going to, to resonate with the audience as being authentic. June, I'll come to you first. Well, I mean, I wrote for President Clinton, so it had to be simple and direct and, and um, down home or like – Normal, um, you know, and I preferred highfalutin, beautiful things, and, <laughs> and I write these real. And that was my specialty. I did the rose garden stuff, and um, and he could do those things. He was really good. Like he he could read anything and make it sound like poetry, but he really did prefer simple, direct. And he'd say too many words. There are too many <laughs> words, you know. And he'd just cut, 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 and then he would make edits on the fly, you know. So. So it really is a struggle between your personal style and his and, and, and really trying to um, be true to him. And so what the best thing to give him was like stories, you know, and stories of people and, and their, you know, and, and things he could tell and sort of like make beautiful um, because the story and the material itself was so rich. Jeff, so. what about for you? What was that process like for you? Yeah, well, I, you know, this goes not just for writing for presidents, but it, when you when whoever you write for um, – there are lots of ways to help understand what sounds like someone, especially now when, when I work with someone, first thing I'll do is I'll watch videos of them, read interviews that they've given. But I'm, but I'm not just trying to get the language that they like to use. It, it, I also want to understand how they think, how they approach a problem, how they approach a world, uh, the world. And so for me, voice comes less from sounds like and more from thinks like. So that's where I devote a lot of my energy. And when you are lucky enough to get to work with someone who will give you their time, who wants you to be part of an act of co-creation of a speech, then you can interview them and you can really ask them very probing questions. And I will often do that. And I'll preface it by saying something like, I'm not a journalist. This, what, you, what you tell me doesn't leave this room. And, and when I'm working with clients or elected officials, it almost becomes like therapy, really trying to understand where are they coming from? What are their motivations? Why, where is their desire to serve come from? And so once you get that thinks like locked in your head, the sounds like becomes a lot easier. Sarah, to your process? Yeah, it's very similar to Jeff's in that I do think it's about how someone thinks. You can work out the words that they like, the phrases that they don't like in the in the sort of process. But initially, you need to understand how they see the world. And so, for example, when I started writing for President Obama, you know, the president doesn't exactly have tons of time to hang out with his speechwriters. So uh, I got the second best thing, which is, you know, immersing yourself in every interview he's ever given, every speech he's ever delivered, every time he was on Jimmy Fallon, you know, the Vogue cover with him and Mrs. Obama. 
much. Just everything about him and his life. And fortunately, he had been in public life for long enough that I could do that. And you sort of start to, I would inhabit the mind and soul of Barack Obama, which is, you know, as creepy as it sounds, but it's it's kind of a way of really starting to wake up in the morning. And when something happened, you know, in the news, my first thought wasn't, hmm, what does Sarada think? My thought was, what does Barack Obama think about this? How many people are typically on a presidential riding team, Jeff? It, it varies. Um, I think probably the last several presidents, it's been in the ballpark of seven to 10. And most people are pretty are generalists. You know, part of the joy of being a speechwriter is being able to go to experts in the field and say, now explain this to me like I'm in eighth grade. And I don't choose that grade at random. That's generally the average American's language processing ability. So so there's something amazing about the job where you get to go to all these incredible people and say, explain to me what you do, explain to the, me to the policy. Um, the one place where where there is some specialization is in most of the past White Houses, there has been a separate small speechwriting team that handles national security and foreign policy. We earlier asked NPR's senior political correspondent Ron Elving about the evolution of the State of the Union address. Here's what he had to say. It is an address on the State of the Union in the sense that it tells us a little bit about the health of our democracy, a little bit about the state of our feelings one state to another. I mean, the State of the Union idea, that, that that name for the speech really only came into popular use in the 1930s and then became the standard name for the speech uh, in the 1940s when it was first on television with Harry Truman. Uh, back in the 1800s, it, it was just called the annual message and uh, the president's message and things like that. Uh, the State of the Union idea, I think, implies a certain degree of hangover, really, from the Civil War and from the periods of our history when we were not a United States of America, when we were very much uh, regionally divided. And some of that is coming back in our politics. Sarada, how have you seen the State of the Union address evolve in recent decades? Well, if you think back to what it started as, you know, only for the first few years, it was delivered as a speech. But then Thomas Jefferson came along and said, you know what, I really hate public speaking, I'm going to turn this into a letter. And so he delivered a letter to Congress. And that was the custom for a very long time until Woodrow Wilson changed that in 1913 and went back to addressing Congress. And when he did it, Congress was actually kind of surprised. Everybody said, wait, what's what's he doing? Why is he going up to the Hill and delivering this speech? But he really thought it was important to almost start a conversation with Congress. And so that's how it's been ever since. Um, You could debate whether or not that's always a good idea, whether the American people really want to hear an hour plus speech. Um, But in recent decades, you know, we've sort of added new things. So, you know, Ronald Reagan added bringing in real people into the first lady's chamber. So he was the first person to invite somebody, um, a, a regular person who had done a heroic act and invite them into the first lady's box to watch the speech and then sort of point them out during the speech. And that's become a custom that I think has actually really um, enlivened the State of the Union a little bit, made it feel like something that ordinary people can connect with because they see people just like them being honored in some way. And um, and I think that that's really helped with sort of the storytelling aspect that June brought up earlier, that you want the, you want the president to not just list a bunch of policies and programs, but actually connect with how those things affect the lives of, of ordinary folks. We got this email from JR who asks, is speech writing anything like the West Wing? June, were you a West Wing watcher? I yeah, actually I did um it started as I was concluding my time at the um at, at the White House and, and so 
It's way more glamorous, and it's not just Rob Lowe writing a speech by himself, <laughs> you know. Um, and 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 you know, and and the pace, you know, like you know, the whole like single camera walking, walking through all these open rooms. <laughs> right. No, it's basic. You know, it is it is meetings, and it's you. But it's you know, for a speechwriter, you're just going back to your office, closing the door, and staring at a blank screen. <laughs> oh, although, like, although at one point I was able to show Rob Lowe my business card and said, "You have done more for this business card than than anyone ever has before." It's also funny because on the West Wing, you know, the, the chief speech writer is also negotiating trade deals with other right. countries, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. all of that is not is not at all how we lived. Yeah. But I do think the one thing the show did get right is there is a sense of purpose. When you sort of telescope back from it, um, that sense of urgency and purpose that you bring to the job, the idea that words matter and words can move people's opinions and change people's minds and, and move other people to action. I, I think all of us who've written speeches for a living buy into that belief I'd love to really quickly hear from each of you how you got involved in political speech writing. Jeff, go ahead. Uh, I was a White House intern for Al Gore, and I got that internship because I had written a cheeky application essay about my sister wetting the rug in the Oval Office as a child. <laughs> <laughs> and that was your entry and, point. And, and I think they thought, okay, like he can he can write and he has a little bit of a sense of humor. Maybe we can put him in speech writing. Sarah, what about for you? Uh, um, I was uh, actually a longtime policy staffer. I was a Hill staffer at the time and not really loving my job. And I was complaining about my job at a party in Washington, as one does in Washington. And a friend of mine said, I know a guy who's a speechwriter. You should talk to him. And that speechwriter was Jeff Nussbaum, who ended (laughs) up uh, uh, basically plucking me from policy obscurity and helping me find my way in speechwriting. Yeah, And the the further connection is June. I I was an intern when June was a speechwriter. So it's it's a I was small, 12. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea we were doing old home day on WAMU. We, we didn't quite studios. know. We didn't quite know it till we walked into the saw each other here. So, well, well, June. I mean, how did you get started? So I, um, I graduated from college, and then I was a reporter for a year in Florida. And I, you know, and this was when the Gingrich Revolution happened. And I figured I need to take a side here. So um, I, I can't just be a reporter. So I, um, I called a friend in D.C. and I said. You know, I really want to come to D.C. and, and you know, work for, for, you know, work in politics and democratic politics. And he's like, you know what? I bet Hillary Clinton's speechwriter would love you. And I'm like, oh, OK, great. And, um, and I, you know, I was like, there's no way I can get into the White House. Are you kidding me? So he's like, well, write a cover letter and send me a resume. And, you know, you never know. And so I'm like, OK. And so, like, I had sweat over so many cover letters in my career, <laughs> you know, like in my young career. I was like, you know, took forever. And this one, I was like, there's no chance. So I really just dashed off a couple paragraphs and like put it on the fax machine because that's how old it was. <laughs> and my friend who was an intern in the speech writing office took it to Hillary Clinton's speech writer and said, you know, this is my friend. She wants to come to D.C. And um, later, you know, you know, a couple of months pass and, you know, um, I do meet her and all this stuff. But, you know, after a while, there was an opening and, you know, she hired me for that job. And she said, you know why I hired you or why I kept being interested in you? And I'm like, why? He's like, because I loved your cover letter. (laughs) And I had no idea. You know, I didn't work on it at all. And yeah, so it was definitely serendipity for me. Well, we got another question, this one from Melissa, who says, I was very inspired and impressed with President Biden's State of the Union speech. I felt he meant what he said. His decades of experience shined through. Does the speechwriter carve out places for spontaneity? Jeff? The answer is yes. Um, 
especially in a, in a speech like that where you know that there's going to be something coming your way. I, we, I didn't actually know, but, but you can sort of guess that there's going to be something coming your way from the crowd or there'll be some reaction that you don't quite know. And so more than anything, you just want to be aware uh, that – that it's not just the words on a page, that, that it's the audience plays a role in this too, and the performance plays a role. And so you are aware in, in the process of writing the speech, knowing that you may get applause here or laughter here or a derisive response from the people who disagree with you here, and you should be prepared for that. And I think one of the things we saw from President Biden last night was how much he welcomed the give and take. I mean, this, it was almost not just a speech, but it was almost like a British prime minister's questions. He he looked eager to engage with the audience. So I don't know how much prep there was for that, but he was certainly ready for it. And and the way he handled it and the way he, he waded into it um, eagerly and authoritatively, I, I think is one of the big takeaways from the speech. Well, here's another question we got from Kate who says, have you ever written a speech where you anticipated a moment in the speech to be the most compelling, but it flopped or was disappointing. Sarah, have you had that experience? You know, what frequently happens is if you are thinking about a speech in terms of lines, so let me let me write in a soundbite. Let me, let me write a line that I think will get, get some applause or get laughter or whatever. Almost invariably, that line doesn't actually land in the way you think. But something that, in my experience, President Obama would ad lib would would be the thing that led the led the stories tomorrow. You know, invariably, and so it is both you know fun and frustrating for speechwriters to know that we can do our level best, but probably whatever the president ad libs is going to be the thing that kind of really slays the crowd. That but happened you, all the time with Clinton. Well, well <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, June, how you make the case for something that you feel is really important, but the person you work for is like, oh, I'm not really, I'm not really, really feeling that because I mean, once it's on the page and once they say it, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. I How mean, hard do you push? I think, yeah, I, you know, like you put it in the speech, right? And you write it in a, in a gorgeous way or in a very eloquent way. And, and, um, and, you know, the, a lot of the times he'll be like, oh, that's really good, but I can't say that, you know? Um, and then it's his speech, you know, and, and you don't, it's not you, you're not writing it. And I think there are times when, you know, my boss would be like, it's not your speech. And I'm like, okay, you're fine. You're right. So you need to serve, you know, you serve your client and you yeah. help. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think we're all circling around the same thing, which is that sometimes it's the tallest flower in the draft that's the first to get mown down, you know, <laughs> you know, and sometimes, so you write a line and it, and it is beautiful and it goes away and you're, you feel bad about it. But a well-crafted speech actually works to get people nodding before it gets them applauding. And sometimes those well-crafted lines almost feel like a cheap way of getting the applause without having quite earned it. And so ideally, a speech really moves people along so that there's an emotional connection beyond one well-crafted line. Yeah. And, and if you're able to do that yeah. – yeah, sorry, go ahead, Jim. Sorry, that was the best feeling when you're watching people watch the speech – and they're nodding along, like with right. every word. It's like, oh my God, it's working, you know. Um, yeah. So that's but, the yeah, it's a great image. But June speaks to something really important, which is that you know, as speechwriters, we are not the speech givers, right? We are ghosts. We are there to help our principal be the best version of themselves. And so, if the line is works for you but doesn't work for them, then it's not it's not meant to be there, right? This is this is there. They have to, they're the ones who have to get up there and give the speech. No one's going to say, well, Jeff wrote a great speech. They're going to say. Joe Biden gave a great speech. And so you have to be true to them. 
Jeff, I think you wanted to jump in here. Go ahead. Well, I, now I've totally forgotten what I was going to say, <laughs> ex, ex, except to do something that it's always wise to do, which is agree with Sarah in June. <laughs> well, you maybe should you should have written it down, Jeff. Yes, yes. Well, June, you shared that one of your favorite speeches you helped write was for President Bill Clinton in 1997. He was speaking at the 40th anniversary of the desegregation of Central High School in Arkansas. Let's listen to a bit of that. Forty years ago, a single image first seared the heart and stirred the conscience of our nation. So powerful, most of us who saw it then recall it still. A 15-year-old girl wearing a crisp black and white dress, carrying only a notebook, surrounded by large crowds of boys and girls, men and women, soldiers and police officers. Her head held high, her eyes fixed straight ahead. And she is utterly alone. The woman he's talking about in that clip is Elizabeth Eckford, one of the Little Rock Nine. They were the first African-American students to enter Little Rock Central High School. June, why was it important for you to start the speech with her story? Well, I think um, I, you know, I was doing all kinds of research on um, Little Rock and the desegregation in 1957 and reading, reading, reading. And then um, I came upon, I think it was in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, like a story about Elizabeth Eckford now, or at that time, now was 25 years ago, but, um, and, you know, her picture. And and I think that picture, you know, obviously shocked the conscience of the world, but also really spoke to me and, and it kind of expressed the the, you know, absolute courage it took for those nine, like, high, young high school students to walk into this all-white School, you know, surrounded by, you know, and you saw in the picture all these people yelling, like vitriol, like hatred for her. And so I really thought that would capture sort of the courage on display that day and and sort of the state of America at that time. Um, And then for me personally, I kind of like really identified as a um, non-white person. And I never experienced any sort of hostility like that, luckily, through my life. But but just the, the feeling of being totally alone. So I thought it would be really good to, I thought it was a great dramatic way to start the speech. I just want to say what June did so beautifully in that opening is she actually was able to describe a photograph, which is incredibly hard to do, right? You know, pictures speak a thousand words, but she was able to help President Clinton convey the photograph in this incredibly compelling, you know, arresting way, which is so, so hard. <laughs> well, Sarah, do you worked as a speechwriter at the Democratic National Conventions in 2012, 2016, and 2020. President Barack Obama spoke at the 2016 convention in the summer before the primary elections. Let's take a listen. We're not done perfecting our union. We're living up to our founding creed that all of us are created equal. All of us are free in the eyes of God. And that work involves a big choice this November. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. It's not just a choice between parties or policies, the usual debates between left and right. This is a more fundamental choice about who we are as a people and whether we stay true to this great American experiment in self-government. We got this message from Sharon, who had this to say about Obama's oratory skills. Barack Obama is an amazing speaker. I, I think he's very motivating and very sincere. And I, whenever I hear him speak, I stop and I listen. 
June, when you think about recent presidents, what is it that makes a speech or or the way they they present that speech something that really connects with their audiences? I mean, for Obama, it I can't. I just go back to stories. I think it's mm-hmm. the way they tell the stories and the way that they convey that they understand um, what people are going through and, and and the empathy they show through the story. And you can overuse the story. Like sometimes you'll hear in the speech, you're like, oh god, they they had to find five stories and, <laughs> and they jammed them all in. You know, it's just too many. But when like one really good story or one like one heartfelt delivery can really like can really connect, you know. And, June, and I'd convey. love your thoughts before the break as well. I'm sorry, Sarada. Oh, um, so I think what's what the most sort of compelling politicians, presidents that we've heard in recent memory have is a very clear theory of why they are in public life. What is the thing that they are fighting for? What is it they believe in? And that thread connects through all of their speeches and all of the deliveries they give. And I think that's the thing that people really connect with, too, in addition to stories. This idea that this person has a theory of the case, has, a, has a, an idea of what the project of America is, and I can get behind that. Aileen asks, when does fact-checking enter the speech-writing process? Jeff? Uh, It's a big part of it. And first of all, one of the things Sarah said earlier is that speech-writing is 25% writing and then, you know, 75% rewriting and process management. Um, None of us are math people, so I'll add another (laughs) 75% to that, which is research on the front end. That ideally, you're going to spend a lot of time with research. You just heard June talk about finding this arresting image that became the powerful opening to that speech. So... On the front end, you're trying to fact check in the research process. You want to make sure that anything that's going into the speech is is defensible and justifiable. In the White House, <clears throat> there is also a research office uh, that every speech goes through, and and these folks are amazing. The, these folks are to speeches what what copy editors are to manuscripts. Um, they they go through everything with a fine tooth comb because the last thing you want to do with a powerful argument is undercut it by overstating it. And so, so getting it right is, is really important. June, I see you nodding emphatically there. Yeah. yeah, no, I remember being so paranoid. I just didn't want to send him or her out with, like, with a mistake. Because, um, you know, people will pounce. You know, there are oppo, oppo researchers or, or just, you know, the press, the media. So, so I, I would triple check everything. I would ask the researchers to triple check. And, and I just remember once it left my hands and I delivered it, um, to the staff secretary, I was like, oh, please. You know, I was more worried about mistakes and errors than, like, the beauty of the piece because mm-hmm. you just didn't want to – you didn't want to be the one to cause a problem. So, Well, John wants to know how far ahead of the event is a speech finished? Does the president always get to practice ahead of the time? Sarah, what can you tell us? It really depends on the speech. So, you know, typically you might have <clears> – the speechwriters would get assigned speeches – any, anywhere from, you know, a few weeks out, maybe to, a, you know, an hour out. Um, you know, if there's, if there's an emergency, when, when uh, Justice Scalia died, um, I had about 45 minutes to write a draft of something that the president had to say because, you know, it was, it was a weekend. It was just everything's were happening really quickly. So you never know. In terms of finalizing a speech, you know, every White House is, is different. In our White House, the process was that, you know, we would try to finalize it um, after going through rounds of editing, having many people give their input, have the president give his edits. We try to finalize it, you know, 
an hour or a couple of hours before it had to be delivered so that it could be sent to the the people who actually present him with, you know, the book that the speech is in, um, send it to the teleprompter if it's going to be read on a teleprompter. But, you know, sometimes there are last minute changes. That's just the reality of, you know, a changing news cycle or maybe at the last minute the fact checker found an error or maybe there's somebody new in the audience that the president needs to acknowledge. And so there are always these last minute changes that could come up, but you want to try to lock it ahead of time. And then in terms of rehearsing, again, it really depends on the president. I'd be curious what what President Clinton did. But, you know, for President Obama, he was a very seasoned speaker. He was very comfortable, um, had been doing this for a long time. And so for the really major speeches, the State of the Union, you know, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where he's got to practice his delivery of humor, he's probably going to do a little bit more rehearsing um, uh, and, and then, than he would for a typical sort of run-of-the-mill speech. So it really depends on the speaker. Jane, what can you tell us about President Clinton's process? Yeah, I think the only time he really rehearsed was State of the Union, and that was definitely time was booked for that, and it was draft after draft and practice, practice. Um, but most, you know, most of the time, you're like he'd see it um, minutes before we went out, and then he'd be editing at his at his desk and or on the fly, or like I think a couple times was like we don't have any time, just get in the car. And it's super exciting because the feature editor doesn't really get in the car, but I got in <laughs> twice. Um, and we're doing it in the car, you know. Um, and um, and uh, and you know, he's very focused as he's getting. You know, he's, he was really focused, changing and making great changes, or um, you know, asking hard questions. But then he would see someone wave wave from the street, and he'd like out of the corner of his eye, he'd like wave. You know, <laughs> like he was just very good. You, you know, um, Sarah, Sarah said something she, just in passing about the book, and I think that bears a, a tiny bit more mention for folks who are interested in process. Is this, there's an office called the Staff Secretary, and they're in charge of the President's briefing book, and they're also in charge a lot of uh, with speech distribution. So, so the first series of deadlines that you try to meet a couple days in advance are getting it into. Um, getting it around to folks in all the different offices who need to see it and sign off on it, including the council's office and the policies off, policy offices. And then when everyone is squared away, that's kind of your first hurdle. It's then meeting that, that all-important book deadline so that the president can get it the night before, two nights before, three nights before, so that, so that the president has a chance, obviously, to, to weigh in and ask for changes and make it theirs. Well, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Tuesday's State of the Union address, but I want to turn to last year's State of the Union address. President Biden began that address by calling out Russian President Vladimir Putin after the invasion of Ukraine. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. The United States, I mean it. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. This line was one of the highest rated parts of his entire address. Jeff, briefly first, how do you evaluate how a speech is received by, by the audience, especially if we're talking about 
a nationwide audience, not just the people in the chamber. Yeah, that, I mean, I leave most of that question to the pollsters. You know, there are polls and dial groups, and, and that was one of the ones that, that rated most highly, uh, according to a dial group that was watching the speech. And it's not surprising, right? I mean, going after oligarchs' yachts is, 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 is a, not, just, not just a wonderful class warfare thing, but an international class warfare <laughs> thing and international tyranny. But, but I, that example also illustrated that that came into the speech very late in the process. The, the invasion had happened, you know, five days prior. And it's a reminder that even in these, these rehearsed speeches, um, that events can, can change. Events can change your focus. And, and so that's a powerful example of how one of the most powerful parts of the speech was one of the latest arriving. You know, it's actually also an example of how a great speech in some ways is unpredictable because it sort of requires the, a great message, right, the message that is most compelling and persuasive delivered by a speaker who has the credibility to convey that message. But it all has to meet a moment that demands that speaker with that message. And you just can't predict when that's going to happen. But for last year's State of the Union, as Jeff pointed out, you know, at that moment with everything that was going on with Russia and Ukraine, it, it sort of all came together in that line. And you mentioned, I, I just want to be clear for the audience, um, I think you called it a dial group. These are people who listen to the speech and they have this this device in their hands and they turn the the dial in one direction when they like what's being heard and they turn it in the other direction when they don't like uh, what they're hearing and that sort of gives a gauge for for a response to the speech. Yeah, sorry, we're doing what our bosses would never allow, which is <laughs> which is we're lapsing into an insidery shorthand. <laughs> well, we've got tons of questions for you. Lori asks, "How do you know when you're finished, June?" As a writer, as a speechwriter, yeah. I mean, you know, like. I totally know about this, but like um, I did it for five years and um, total. And toward the end, it was just, you know, you get an assignment and you just go back to your office like, oh, my God, again. You know, like it just you sort of like nothing really brings you joy, you know, like, oh, my God, there's a great commencement speech. It's such a great opportunity. But, you know, you get kind of tired of just like writing for other people and you just want to like do your thing. And and so that happened after five years. And um and I really just could not bear to write another word. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, didn't the questioner mean when you're done with a speech? Yeah, and I think oh. I missed I, I, I thought you <laughs> meant as a speechwriter. I'm like, yeah, I should write a speech oh. for somebody. Oh, okay, <laughs> but that was that was sorry, great yeah, insight yeah, as well. Sorry, sorry, too much, TMI, TMI. <laughs> we're constantly TMI, putting each TMI. other on the couch here. <laughs> well, I have an I have an answer to that question, uh-huh. um, which is that you sort of never feel like you're really done. You know? Mm-hmm. So so the the last draft, the final draft, you know, it set you, you send it out in the Obama White House, we would send it out via email and it would say, you know, final to teleprompter to the book, which is the the other book with the, which they print out for the president to have a hard copy in case the pre- in case the teleprompter breaks. And you send it final. But I would still be sort of on tenterhooks waiting for him to start delivering the speech and feeling like you weren't done. And once, actually, um, this was during the, the speech the president, President Obama gave um, after the Supreme Court legalized marriage equality. And um, I had sent the draft um, and the final draft to the teleprompter, the Rose Garden, you know, event was starting. And I suddenly realized that I had put in 
good afternoon in the it to start to open the speech, but it was still technically morning. It was, you know, eleven forty five or something. And I freaked out and emailed my boss and I ran to the Rose Garden, <laughs> just ran like crazy as the thing was starting and went to the teleprompter guys and said, It's still morning. And they I, said, Don't worry, we got it. I, I've I've done that as well. And and Sarah to mention sending something that says, you know, teleprompter final. And occasionally you'll see something that says teleprompter final, final, final two, <laughs> final, final three. <laughs> yeah. So so I my 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 superstition is I never label anything final. Final for fear of it becoming unfinal, and so so I. In answer to the questioner, it's like to me, it's done once it's delivered, right. and not exactly. a minute before. June, what's your process for knowing when you're done? Is it is it once the speech <laughs> is given? It's like okay, that's done. Yeah, no, like seriously, you're worried until the moment he says thank you very much and God bless America. You know, but um, but yeah, and as he's delivering it, you're like, oh God, we should have used this word, you know, or this word. You're like, you have these like regrets, like. Oh, I should have thought of that. Um, a lot of the times they will make the great edit and you're like, oh my God, what a genius. You know, so yeah, the only time you can breathe is when they say, God bless America. Well, you know, see you later. <laughs> well, we got this really interesting question from a member of our text club who says, have any of your guests worked as a speechwriter for someone whose views they were ethically or morally opposed to? How did they reconcile that? Jeff? This is a great question. I get this from time to time. And it, it, it'll sound ultimately unidealistic in a couple of ways. The, the first is, as, as Sarada said earlier, and I think June reflected as well, the speech belongs to the speaker. So your job is not to write the platonic ideal of what you would say. Your job is to help them be their best self. And if, if their best self, if their true self is someone you, uh, and this was advice I got early on in my career, if it's someone you agree with, 80% of the time, but who can get 51% of the vote, then, then maybe it's worth, you know, uh, working through those disagreements in service of a larger shared agenda. Now, I had a boss once who said, sure, you can find someone you agree with 100% of the time, but if they can only get 49% of the vote, you're going to be writing for them to deliver on a soapbox in the middle of the, you know, on a city street, because they're not going to be in a position of power. So there's, there are certainly moments where you just think you've seen it speechwriters have fallen on their swords and said i can't do this this is this is beyond what i'm comfortable doing but i think more often than not you're able to stomach small areas of disagreement if they're in service of a larger shared agenda well i want to talk about uh, those moments when a president isn't giving a, a soaring you know, we're everything's great. We're doing fine speech. But they really have to address these moments of, of tragedy. In January 1986, President Ronald Reagan addressed the nation after the Challenger disaster. This was the space shuttle containing seven astronauts, and it exploded shortly after takeoff. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. Sarah, to briefly, what's the strategy behind crafting speeches when the president have to, has to take on that role of comforter-in-chief? You know, it, it as like with everything, it depends. But I think that certainly in the Obama White House, the kind of speech that was given so frequently that the speechwriters, you know, had to write with a heavy heart were uh, speeches that he had to deliver after mass shootings. Um, and... 
you know, over time, they just collected and collected. We had to do so many of them. And I think the, the sort of frustration with doing a speech like that versus even something like a, a natural disaster, which we also had to do, or something like the Challenger disaster, which President Reagan did, was that these these tragedies feel so preventable and are prevent and, and the reason that we're not solving them is because of politicians. And so I think what you saw with President Obama over time was, you know, speak to the to the people who are sort of most affected in the immediate in the immediate term, right? As as one of my colleagues would say, you want to find the emotional heart center of the speech. So if it's the you know the the survivors of a mass shooting, the victims' families, speaking to their pain and then sort of moving outward to kind of put this in the context of the entire American story and make people feel like the whole country is with them. You know, so you start with from a place of empathy. But then oftentimes the role of the president is to continue and sort of put forth a policy that could potentially prevent this in the future. We have just a few seconds left here, and I want to make sure to get to a question a lot of people are asking, and that's how do you get into the business of speechwriting if you're interested? Any quick advice, Jeff? Right, uh, right, right, right. Toasts, write blogs. For me, to get someone to hire me to be a speechwriter, I needed to show them that I'd done it. And there are lots of opportunities in life that may not feel like formal speechwriter training. But if you can show someone how you've been able to write, they're more likely to give you a chance to write for them. Well, I have the feeling we could go another 30 minutes on this topic, but we've got to leave it there. That was Jeff Nussbaum. He's a former special assistant and senior speechwriter for President Joe Biden. Sarah DePerry, a former special assistant and senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. And June Shi. June is a former senior speechwriter to Hillary Clinton and a former special assistant and speechwriter for President Bill Clinton. Jeff, Sarah, June, thanks so much for this conversation. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. Us. Today's producers were Jorgelina Manorea and Lauren Hamilton, with help from Chris Remington and Avery Jessa Chapnick. Our podcast is produced by Barb Anguiano. These shows were originally broadcast from Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.